From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, a standing ovation in the Canadian Parliament for an aging Ukrainian Nazi lays bare the truth about the migration of scores of Nazis into Canada and the United States after World War II. Canada, and in fact the United States, which has also had over the decades a kind of a pro-Nazi uh, immigration policy, are more than willing to cooperate uh, with these NAZIS in order to possibly bring down the Russian government, which has been a long-standing, long-term ambition. And in the United Nations General Assembly, leaders from the African Sahel and other regions of the Global South spoke out about forcing the neo-colonial boot off their necks. In the Sahel, we have some 10,000 soldiers, armed soldiers that are foreign soldiers, They have flying equipment, they have surveillance equipment, which is the most sophisticated in the world. And yet, they don't see the hundreds of terrorists that are moving around in order to serve death and desolation. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. First, some headlines. As of this broadcast, it still looks very likely that the U.S. federal government will shut down on Monday, October 1st, as the House Freedom Caucus continues to hold the budget process hostage. About 4 million workers would be affected, half of which are active duty military and reservists, and 85 percent of which live outside the D.C. area. Even though almost all of these workers will not be paid, some performing tasks considered essential will be asked to report to work without pay. According to the American Federation of Government Employees, roughly $5 billion a week in just civilian workers' wages could get sucked out of the economy in a shutdown, but this halt will not stop Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security payments and will not close the U.S. Postal Service. According to the American Prospect magazine, the Freedom Caucus refuses to abide by the agreement it struck between House Republicans and President Biden back during the debt ceiling negotiations, where Republicans extracted some modest budget cuts, quote, in return for not blowing up the global financial system, end quote. Meanwhile, economist Richard Wolff said on the Socialist Program podcast that both parties are to blame for what he calls this political theater because both Republicans and Democrats refuse to cut the bloated military budget, which eats up more than 60% of the discretionary spending, and both parties refuse to repeal Trump's 2017 huge tax cut for the wealthy and corporations, which ballooned the deficit by $7.8 trillion before the pandemic. Though Congress only increases the military budget each year, the issue of the more than $100 billion given to Ukraine by the United States in support of this proxy war against Russia has been raised during this budget stalemate. And this issue of funding only intensified after Ukrainian President Zelensky's visit to the Canadian Parliament was mired in scandal. Yaroslav Hunka, an elderly Ukrainian immigrant living in Canada, was given a standing ovation for fighting, quote, for Ukrainian independence against the Russians in the Second World War, end quote. It was later revealed that Hunka is a veteran of the 14th Division of Hitler's Waffen-SS, which committed war crimes and atrocities in Ukraine and Poland before being defeated by the then Soviet Union. Anthony Rhoda, leader of the Canadian Parliament, has resigned, and there was debate in the Parliament about striking this honoring of Hunka from the record as if the massive embarrassment had never happened. This is Government House Leader Karina Gould speaking in Parliament on September 26th. During the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Vladimir Zelensky, be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. Gould's motion to strike the honoring of Hunka from the official record was denied. We'll have more on Canada's Nazi problem later in the show. 
French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Sunday, September 24th, on a news broadcast that France's ambassador and other diplomats would be withdrawn from Niger within hours and that its military would be withdrawn in the coming months. Approximately 1,500 French soldiers are believed to be based in Niger. Pan-African activist Kemi Saba recently spoke to a large crowd rallying outside the French military base in Niger for the complete expulsion of France from the country. He denounced any possible invasion by ECOWAS or the Economic Community of West African States in Niger following the July military coup takeover of the country, which has received popular support. Every person has the right to taste freedom. All people have the right to taste independence and to regain their dignity. And if France doesn't want to allow Africans to breathe, we're going to force it to listen to us. We are a new generation, a generation that does not fear blows, a generation that does not fear sanctions, a generation that does not fear death threats or persecution. We say to France and we say to the West, don't make the mistake of trying to stop the revolutionary process. More on the conflict in the Sahel later in the show with a portion of the speech at the United Nations by Burkina Faso's Minister of State. Back in the United States, the United Auto Workers said that it planned to expand its strike on Friday, September 29th, and that UAW President Sean Fain would make an announcement about the expansion at 10 a.m. Eastern on Facebook Live. An initial strike at just three plants on September 15th was expanded to include 20 Stellantis parts distribution centers and 18 owned by GM. While the union said Ford was not targeted in the expansion because substantial progress was being made in talks with Ford. The strike by UAW, which is seeking a 36% raise over the life of the contract, is again heightening the debate over rampant wage inequality in the U.S. as the CEOs of Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis all received between $21 million and $29 million in compensation last year. In 2022, the three CEOs earned around 300 times what the median employee earned. Now in D.C., which is cited as the most quickly gentrifying city in the United States, issues of human needs for housing and resistance to mass incarceration are in the news. In response to a spike in crime, there are proposed laws by the D.C. Council the latest of which is the Accountability and Victim Protection Act of 2023, which would allow for increased pretrial detention of those accused of certain crimes. While supporters of the proposed laws cite repeat offenses and harm to victims by those arrested then released pending trial, those opposing the law say this new measure only exacerbates mass incarceration, consigns those not convicted of any crime to filthy conditions in the D.C. jail, and violates the principle of of being innocent until proven guilty. Chantel James recently attended a teaching by Harriet's Wildest Dreams, which is opposed to the law. Harriet's Dreams held a constructive teaching this week to inform people of the upcoming crime bills being presented by the Judiciary and Public Safety Committee, as well as to take action by submitting testimony against them. The situation was contextualized with the rise of carcerality from the state in D.C., which currently already holds the designation of the most police city in the nation. We also heard from Rahina Martin, whose 17-year-old brother, Delano Martin, was slain by Park Police this March. Hello, everyone. I'm Keita. So my brother was the 17-year-old who got killed by park police in March. So D.C. spends over $500 million every year on MPD. D.C. has the most police per capacity in any major city in the U.S. So that means if we have in the police keep continue to police instead of building resources for mental health when there's mental health outbreaks and other things. There will be continued killings. Meanwhile, D.C. neglects our community. In 2019, D.C. was ranked the most 
intensely gentrified city in the U.S. We have nearly 5,000 unhoused neighbors. War 7 and 8 have four full service grocery stores. Possibly soon to be three. Schools have more cops than counselors. And we learned that D.C. public schools have their own MPD. D.C. has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the U.S. with War 7 and 8 accounting to 70% of D.C.'s pregnancy-related deaths. Neglecting the community leads to violence. It's not a, a coincidence that 40% of all gun violence in D.C. takes place in one square mile, 2% of the city in Southeast, and one of the most over-policed and neglected places in the city. So on March 18th, my brother was killed by Park Police. I was, me and my oldest brother was on the scene because we got the phone call that my brother had got shot by police. He was shot six times. We identified my brother. He had identified marks from an injury, bicycle injury, like um, two months before that. They took my brother off seeing being a John Doe without telling us anything about what happened. To this day, we still do not know the officer who killed my brother. And it's really hard for our family also. And DC, because my brother was killed by a police officer, DC did not give us any money. And because it was a controversy case, it was hard really raising GoFundMe for my brother. So we just need to get more resources and help for the young people instead of keep letting the police interact with them. Following the testimony workshop, the organizers provided the ways testimony can be submitted. You can also provide testimony by the deadline of October 2nd. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, the residents of Ridgecrest Condominium in Southeast D.C. are fighting against what they say is a concerted effort of the Condo Association Board to force them from their homes by failing to use the maintenance fees that they pay to make crucial repairs on their building, portions of which have been deemed unsafe by the district. One of the residents, the journalist Leanne Scott, told on the ground that residents have filed a lawsuit. But in the meantime, two of the 25 seniors living in the building are currently living without electricity, and 25 other units are at risk of losing electricity. The residents are trying to raise $40,000 to replace their electrical panel because their condo association board will not use their condo fees to make repairs. They are holding a fundraiser and a celebration of their effort to keep their homes on Saturday, September 30th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 4000 East Street Southeast, Washington, D.C., 20019. That event is Saturday, September 30th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 4000 East Street Southeast, Washington, D.C., 20019. For more information, contact Leanne Scott at Grassroots DC. All one word, grassrootsdc.org. Some may be hearing this show after the 30th, and you can also search on GoFundMe.com, Help Ridgecrest Residents Stay in Their Homes. That's on GoFundMe.com, Help Ridgecrest Residents Stay in Their Homes. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. The ground beneath my feet.
I give the floor to His Excellency Basulma Bazi, Minister of State, Minister of Civil Service of Burkina Faso. Excellence. Excellency, distinguished President of the 78th session of the UN General Assembly, distinguished Secretary General of the United Nations, distinguished participants. On behalf of His Excellency Captain Ibrahim Traoré, President of the Transition Head of State, I convey to you the warm greetings of the people and government of Burkina Faso on behalf of the Burkina Bay people. I pay a humble tribute to the memory of those great world leaders who embodied the hopes and dreams for a just and equitable world through their commitment, determination, and sacrifice. I'm thinking in particular of Fidel Castro of Cuba, Patrice Emery Lumumba of Congo, Muribo Keita of Mali, Ruben Umnyobe and Felix Mumier of Cameroon, Sylvanius Olympio of Togo, Che Guevara of Argentina, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X of the USA, Nelson Mandela of South Africa, Joma Kenyatta of Kenya, Amakar Cabral of Guinea-Bissau, and Cabo Verde, Marian Nugabi of the Republic of Congo, Captain Noel Isidore Toma Sankara of Burkina Faso, and others. These leaders were largely executed violently. Others were assassinated. They died in prisons or from poisoning. Their only crime in each case was embodying the dreams, ambitions, and hopes of the peoples that have been killed, raped, trampled, and pillaged. Mr. President, my presence at this august podium before the UN on behalf of Burkina Faso, country of upstanding men, is not to beat my breast in lamentation. And I am not here either to make a flowery speech. I was sent here to tell you that the lies of states, diplomatic hypocrisy, the thirst for power, the frenetic quest for profit, the diabolical spirit of domination and exploitation of man by man, these are the true wounds that poison our coexistence and drive all societies toward perdition, including our organization, the UN. His Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, his Excellency, Mr. Joe Biden, President of the United States. His Excellency, Dennis Francis, representative of Trinity, Trinidad and Tobago to the UN, elected President of the 78th Session of the General Assembly. His Excellency, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, President of the Republic of Brazil. Allow me to hear, cite excerpts from your respective statements delivered at this very podium at the opening of this 78th session. First of all, and I quote, we are living in an upside-down world. Bodies litter the beaches where billionaires bask. Secondly, and I quote, we are at a crossroads. We have a common cause that is leaving to our children a world with a better social environment, end quote. The, for the third person, despite difficulties, we can emerge from this. 
What we lack is not ability but political will. Otherwise, we'd be able to provide progress and peace for all." End quote. And for the fourth personage I'm citing, quote, there's a dissonance between rhetoric and practice, the facts. The UN Security Council is paralyzed. The UN must shoulder its responsibilities in a world of solidarity and justice as laid out in the UN Charter. And this requires it to have the courage to fight inequality, end quote. The quintessence of these statements by these four August personages clearly shows that inequality throughout the world is deliberate. Otherwise, with a modicum of courage and political will, we would be able, if not to eradicate them, at least to minimize them. Indeed, every year we hear so many speeches as well as promises and commitments, but the proof of dissonance between rhetoric and facts on these issues relating to principles in the UN Charter, including justice, equality, dignity, integrity, self-determination, the sovereignty of states, the inviolability of territory, and respect for international law. The proof of this dissonance lies in what's happening in Libya, in the Sahel, especially in Niger, and the crisis between Russia and Ukraine. First of all, in Libya, after the catastrophic flooding, thousands of people lost their lives to assuage our consciences, every nation rushed to provide their condolences and solidarity. This was, of course, to give the impression that we're living in a society and that we defend these values. Intellectual honesty requires, and the history of our conscience tells us, that we ought to sincerely apologize to the people, the Libyan people, for collectively and individually being complicit, whether through pass uh, passiveness or active complicity, for supporting those butchers who caused the first man-made disaster in Libya. It was this disaster that brought Libya to its knees by looting it and by killing its guide before the flooding plunged into further sorrow. And unfortunately, this human disaster was led by the UN under Resolution 1970, as well as the guilty silence and the complicity of ECOWAS and the African Union. This macabre intervention with Nicolas Sarkozy's France spearheading the effort killed the Libyan guide Colonel Muammar Gaddafi on October 20, 2011. If our condolences to the Libyan people had the slightest bit of common sense and were not hypocritical, then this murderous diplomacy would never have uh, taken place. And now Niger is en route to becoming a second Libya. Next, international relations are tainted by great diplomatic diplomacy with no conscience or morals, dignity or integrity, justice nor peace. And this is proven because there is a clear uh, hunger for devouring prey. Today, we unfortunately must see that contrary to the good faith statements made at this UN podium, which call for respect for the UN Charter and international law, leaders representing the people of Niger, this brotherly people, were essentially forbidden from, ex from accessing the UN headquarters. Burkina Faso strongly condemns this underhanded maneuver which uh, seems to belong to the practices of the past. And this can only be explained by a loss in, of essential values needed for any harmonious life in society. The UN should never be used as an instrument in the hands of any country. Pan-Africanist leaders who fought for African unity are grandparents who fell in dignity, shot by the colonialists, these great sons of Africa who sacrificed themselves for the honor of their continent, who fought fiercely against the slave trade and neocolonialism, all of them are, have had their eternal rest disturbed. When they heard that a handful of exiles, African exiles, are holding Niger hostage, yes, dear African continent, just a handful of your children have decided to humiliate you through the shameless lies 
of a state, starting with Niger. And therefore, I issue a sincere and solemn appeal to the people of Senegal, Benin, Niger, Ghana, Chad, Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea-Bissau, and all the people of Africa to stand up in fraternity and solidarity in Africa in order to prevent the imperialists from setting fire to Niger as they did in Libya. President, Secretary General, distinguished first participants at this podium in the UN and before the entire world, I insist that ECOWAS, the African Union, and the UN must become true organizations of peoples instead of structures used by a minority of heads of state. They cannot be used and instrumentalized to destabilize brotherly countries by killing their leaders. This is the only way the UN Charter and International Law could have any meaning. And lastly, speaking of the UN Charter and International Law, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is underway and is even desired by certain powers. And several Western countries, especially the U.S. and the European Union, have uh, provided all forms of military support to this conflict. The Ukrainian civilian population are used as uh, volunteers, and some of them are even are piloting tanks. They're traded as patriots in this war. Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso are dealing with a war that was imposed upon them by imperialism under the pretext of terrorists. And they, these are sowing terror and destruction, despite the UN Charter with its principles of equality, justice on one hand, and on the other hand, international law, which has been often cited here at the UN. There is a massive chasm between in the treatment of these different issues. For example, take Burkina Faso. Civilian populations are dealing with lethal incursions monstrous attacks by terrorists, and they've decided to mobilize alongside the Defense and Security Forces. These populations have been trained by the FDS, and they are called volunteers for the defense of the homeland. In Burkina Faso, we have 58,000 such volunteers, of which 42,000 are communal volunteers and 16,000 are national volunteers, and they are fighting alongside the Defense and Security Forces, the FDS, and they were trained and are guided by them. They only act under the orders and the oversight of the FDS in accordance with regulations to protect their lives and their property. These are the patriots that certain heads of state of ECOWAS and the African Union, exploited by capitalist imperialist forces, are trying to describe to the international community as militias, and that is the shameless state-sponsored lie. Mr. President, if the international community were honest and sincere in its commitment to fight terrorism, it would have no problem with civilian populations training themselves to defend themselves. There is a clear lack of honesty in the international community. Here are a few examples. First of all, when Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and other countries organized along their common borders by pooling their forces to combat terrorism, France came out of nowhere to impose its instrument, that is G5 Sahel. Today, ECOWAS suddenly has established an intervention force to reestablish democracies. It announced a contribution of two billion U.S. dollars. But from the creation of this G5 Sahel until its dissolution, ECOWAS was only able to allocate 25 million U.S. dollars. So can they be really said to take seriously the defense of human lives as laid out in the Declaration of Human Rights and Peoples? Secondly, Burkina Faso is experiencing cynical sanctions after the coup d'etat of December, September 30, 2022. This so-called international community led by France which just uses its lackeys in Africa, uh, tried to nominate a prime minister in Burkina Faso, but in vain. Then they tried to impose various ministers and strategic posts within the government of my country, again in vain. And lastly, they negotiated a con the continuing relations so that Captain Ibrahim Traoré would implement their will. This was their prerequisite for his uh, being in power. But he refused this. 
in the name of the higher interest of his people. And as a result, an avalanche of repressive measures, threats, and attempted coup d'etats was unleashed upon him. These are un immoral maneuvers uh, concocted in criminal laboratories. And unfortunately, all of these macabre maneuvers were led by puppet leaders of African countries. And that's the case for this famous uh, uh, Accra initiative. Even that was not able to last for long. Thirdly, in addition to cutting off aid uh, and other problems with our FDS, we are seeing a, block, a blockade on material equipment for us, again, led by France. For example, for the important uh, air defense equipment needed to control and defend our territory, we had a contract with Brazil and the weapons license was supposed to come from Belgium, and the navigation and firing system, as well as the video cameras, was supposed to come from the U.S., and, and motor was supposed to come, and engine was supposed to come from Canada. But these, uh, this equipment was all cynically blocked. You talk about defending human rights at the U.N., so therefore I ask you to deliver to us our weapons that we need to defend and protect our peoples who are being killed. In any case, I am solemnly informing you of this. If nothing is done, history will hold you responsible for failing to assist people in danger. Distinguished Secretary General and President of the General Assembly, members of the international community, their international community has failed to assist states attacked by terrorism. There's been international hypocrisy, and certain powers dominate the UN. They are complicit in pillaging Africa. Shouldn't this international community be brought before the International Criminal Court for all of this? Our security must be assured by us ourselves, first and foremost, not by anyone else. When it comes to the Wagner presence in Burkina Faso, which has been, uh, which has been covered by a puppet press controlled by, the, by France, I would respond that we have, it's our brave FDS that is defending our homeland. Consequently, from this high tribune of the United Nations that magnifies the sacrifice of my country in, on behalf of national interest, I here applaud the memory of all those who fell with, due to weapons, magnifying the courage and integrity of those who are still alive, inexorably sacrificing for victory for our people and safeguarding our country rather than stopping the human bloodshed. It's fallacious accusations that have occurred and lies wrapped in hypocritical diplomacy and veiled threats to indicate to our partners that they need what how we need to behave ourselves. And we say no. On behalf of the United Nations Charter itself and international law that you raise to defend yourselves and here in this tribune, the African peoples and those of the Sahel and specifically are resolutely committed to fully assuming their full emancipation for true social progress. And thus, Burkina Faso will work with its partners that it wants to work with in a sovereign manner and buy from who it wants and defend how it wants. The fact that a country called Russia, Iran, Turkey, Azerbaijan, Cuba, Nicaragua, North Korea, or Burkina Faso can buy and sell their goods freely without any intermediary, without any authorization from anyone, no matter what happens. Mr. President and Secretary General, let's talk about hypocrisy and let's talk about state lies in this issue of fighting terrorism, generally speaking, in the Sahel specifically. Perhaps you don't ignore what I'm about to say, but let me lay out my arguments first. In the Sahel, we have some 10,000 soldiers, armed soldiers, that are foreign soldiers. Most of them are French soldiers, but there are also American soldiers, Germans, Italian, etc. They have weapons. They have flying equipment, they have surveillance equipment, which is the most sophisticated in the world, and yet they don't see the hundreds of terrorists that are moving around in order to serve death and desolation, often with unimaginable weapons at their side. In Mali, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, there is no factory to manufacture weapons nor manu munitions. So who is recruiting these terrorists? Who is training them? Who is providing them with weapons? Who feeds them and with what means? Do you believe in this philanthropy on behalf of whom the Westerners have sent 
their armies to the Sahel to die for our beautiful blue eyes? Well, if you believe that, then what justifies the diplomatic irritation and other gesticulation of France when we told them to skedaddle with their armies? The real reason is really about the resources that are underground in the Sahel. Indeed, the National French Assembly voted and enacted Law 057 of 10 January of 1957, which then appeared in the official journal of the French Republic of January 1957, which led to the creation of the Common Organization of the Saharian Region, the OCRS, which brought together the parties of Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Mauritania, Algeria, etc. This zone is unparalleled in the world in terms of wealth underground. For example, the water table, the most significant water table in the world, goes from Mauritania to Somalia and goes through Mali, Algeria, Libya, Niger, etc. The newspaper Le Monde in July 1957 put forth a figure of six to seven million tons of oil found below our soil, potentially in the Sahara, in addition to the natural resources that we also have, such as uranium, gold, cobalt, zinc, diamonds, lithium, copper, etc. You, the Westerners, you so much love the Sahel people, so much that you bring your military and your armies to die in the name of democracy, in the name of freedom and human rights and peace, then why is it that an African continent with some 1.3 billion people and the second largest continent of the world in terms of people with a number that the interpreter cannot figure out of the number of square kilometers and 54 states has no permanent seat within the Security Council, such a huge continent with so many people and no right of veto. How do you justify that? Does that not go beyond a state crime? Is it not beyond a crime of the UN that that is happening? So let's stop with the diplomatic lying, the gross lies which basically involves imperialist powers coming to the Sahel to defend quote-unquote democracy and human rights. And let's talk about human rights for a minute. Let's remind ourselves here of the first charter in the world on the issue of human rights was the Kurokan Fuga in Mali in 1236. That was the first document that addressed that. And let's go to the second issue, which is Africa does not like to compare deaths. That would be ill-mannered on our part to do so. So I will respectfully bow to the memory of all nationalities of people who lost their lives in Africa and in the Sahel specifically. But if we look at the hazards that are involved and we look at the unfortunate and condescending attitude of the president of the French Republic, Emmanuel Macron, often who verges on the ridiculous while glorifying a hypothetical condescension vis-a-vis -vis African people. And I have to impose on myself here the duty of giving him a little lesson on history, on his own history, because this is why your classrooms are full of children that are learning their lessons well and growing up in other words, turn to this story at the risk of losing the real story forever. But let me clarify here that no African people is opposed to the French people. There's no anti-French sentiment in Africa, nor is there any issue with our legendary hospitality and our love of our neighbors. Rather, the African people refuse the condescendence, the arrogance, the insolence, the sufficiency, the paternal attitude, the looting of our resources and organized crime. That's our problem. Indeed, for your memory, Mr. Emmanuel Macron, first, let me remind you here that through the BBC in England on the 14th of June, 1940, an appeal was launched by your own grandfather, General de Gaulle, to Africa to come and save France from the grip of the Nazis. Let me remind you, 17,000 Malians died during the two world wars. This is a blood debt that France and has hidden. And if we look at the book of Bakari Kamian, the professor of the University of Sorbonne in France, says, and in that same document, in page 345, there's a table that looks at the war and the loss of lives in the two wars people from Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, 80, over 82,000 fallen soldiers from those countries in those wars, and over 154,000 soldiers. And this is from a French source, a book by Henri Léger, Report on the End of the AOF Mission, from 1950 it was published. And this is in the archives of Senegal. 
please see Annex 5. Now, moving on to the next argument. The 17 November 1986, François Mitterrand, the French president at the time, in response to Captain Sankara said, and I quote, Africa was looted. And here I'm talking about raw materials. I should have talked about people. For centuries, we exploited you at a human level. We stole your men, your women, your children. We used you. I understand your refusal, I understand your revolt, and I approve of your fight. You are right to refuse to be a sacrificed continent. The time has come for you to develop your own economies based on your own goods and people. And the duty of these countries who abusively used you and used African labor, their duty is to restore to Africa what was taken from them over the last few centuries, end of quote. Indeed, Africa was always openly looted and pillaged, but still there is a great deal of wealth in our continent of people and mineral resources. By way of proof, let's talk about mineral resources. Africa has 30% of the worldwide mineral reserves, 40% of gold reserves, 33% of diamond reserves, 80 percent of Colton reserve used for telephones, 60 percent of cobalt reserves for batteries, 55 percent of uranium reserves. So it's for the defense of this Africa that the young people of Africa stand. That was Basoma Bazi, Minister of State of Burkina Faso, speaking September 23rd at the United Nations. Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali recently joined in a security pact for mutual protection of the three countries. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivera. And for more national and international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. He is the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than 40 books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, D.C. is obviously in a special type of turmoil right now. The As we speak, the government shutdown can happen within days. Youth climate activists occupied Speaker McCarthy's office this week, demanding that this shutdown not happen because of all the the, the impact it will have on the, the climate situation and also student loans, that student loans will apparently still be due to resume <laughs> even if the government shuts down and um, just so many issues that uh, affect, you know, millennials, Gen Z, 
the whole youth cohort that was there occupying his office this week. And uh, of course, we know that Senator Menendez of New Jersey was indicted, really shocking charges of fraud related to his dealings with Egypt and and apparently the, the FBI finding his jackets in his house stuffed with cash, a half a million dollars in cash and gold bars like, you know, most of us have never seen. So anyway, so may, maybe we should start with Menendez. And I know we have a few things internationally to deal with as well. So Senator Menendez is a Cuban-American senior citizen from New Jersey. He has been on the other side of the law previously beating charges less than a decade ago because of a hung jury. Uh, These charges are quite serious, uh, not only involving uh, cash and jackets in his home, but gold bars as well, uh, not to mention a Mercedes-Benz automobile, which apparently was gifted to his spouse. Now, what's even more remarkable about this Menendez case is that he obviously was quite close to Egypt and Egyptians. And there hangs a tale because he also took Cairo's side with regard to its confrontation with Ethiopia, particularly over Ethiopia's construction of the Grand Renaissance Dam, which Egypt claims is a threat to its lifeblood, meaning the Nile River. And perhaps unattached or perhaps attached to this story is the fact that Senator Menendez was quite harsh in his policy towards the uh, Abiy Ahmed regime and Addis Ababa. Uh, Perhaps they were not sufficiently generous to him, his spouse and his campaign funds. Mm. And I should also say, in a related story, perhaps, that a man of Ethiopian descent, speaking of Abraham Lemma, who is a resident of Silver Spring, Maryland, and is a U.S. government contractor, has been charged with espionage in terms of turning over secret photographs from satellites of the U.S. authorities uh, to the government in Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia. Now, espionage can bring the death penalty. I'm wondering if there is going to be an effort to build a defense fund in his behalf uh, in light of the fact that he's being charged with doing favors for the Ethiopian government. Part of the problem is that a goodly number of the Ethiopian community in the DMV, the District of Maryland and Virginia, many of them were boasting that they had helped to elect the Virginia Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, because they felt that the White House was much too negative with regard to Ethiopia. Now, the question is, will that boasting and bragging backfire? When the time arrives to arrange a defense fund uh, for uh, Abraham Lemma, and likewise, the Black American community, as we've mentioned more than once on these airwaves, have not been in the vanguard of late in terms of weighing in on pivotal and crucial foreign policy issues. Uh, This issue regarding Mr. Lemma is one of those issues. It involves espionage. But it's unclear to me, at least, uh, whether or not Mr. Lemma will be able to get support uh, either from the Congressional Black Caucus or the NAACP or other mainstream black organizations. You mentioning his case reminds me that the young uh, black soldier was released by North Korea also. It's not a case that we talked about a lot, but I just note that if you want to comment on it. Well, I hope that I'm drawing a wrong inference from the fact that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has turned over this young black soldier to the U.S. authorities who shipped him immediately to an uncertain fate 
in the United States and Texas more specifically. The wrong inference that I hope that I'm drawing is that North Korea, which during the war on the Korean Peninsula from 1950 to 1953, oftentimes welcomed with open arms uh, Black American soldiers who were defecting from the U.S. side. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge, needless to say, since 1953. And I'm inferring from the fact that he was turned back over to the U.S. authorities, apparently with the assistance of their ally in Beijing, suggests that uh, unlike the past, uh, Black Americans are not necessarily viewed as some sort of dissonance, although I think that it would be a fair characterization of this young man. And as a result, uh, he's going to be forced probably to walk the plank, uh, which I would not wish on anyone. Hmm. The only reports I heard was that he was going to, you know, happy to be reunited with his family. And maybe we'll catch up with that story in the future. But there were major developments in terms of the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. And more so what was happening on this side of the Atlantic, though, in terms of a standing ovation and a fist pump given to a former member of the SS, Galician Nazis in Ukraine, a former member of this group being roundly applauded in the Canadian parliament. And this turned into a major embarrassment for the the government, for Trudeau, for the parliament's leader who's had to resign. So the people who listen to this show, they know that we've talked about Ukraine's Nazi history and also the U.S. backed coup in 2014 being led by Nazi forces there. What is your reaction to this crazy event up in Canada? Well, obviously, it gives a black eye to the government of Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, either Mr. Trudeau can plead abominable ignorance with regard to this man, this 98-year-old Nazi, who was introduced to a standing ovation in Parliament, as you suggested, or there was incredibly incompetent staff work. Uh, And of course, in a situation like this, it's usually the staff that takes the fall. But it's deeper than that. Uh, Christian Freeland, who is viewed widely as Mr. Trudeau's successor, uh, comes from a similar right-wing Ukrainian background. And it's difficult to believe that she was unwitting uh, with regard to these events. Now, the Speaker of Parliament, uh, he took the fall. But it's apparent, too, that the Canadian government over the decades, certainly since 1945, have been more than welcoming to Nazis crossing the Atlantic, particularly to the so-called prairie provinces. In fact, uh, the man who is now under fire has been a major donor to the University of Alberta, uh, one of the prairie provinces. And that bespeaks the fact that he was no cipher. Uh, He was not some man who just wandered in off the streets. Uh, He was uh, at the top level of Canadian society. And obviously, this feeds in to the overarching narrative that Canada, and in fact, the United States, which has also had over the decades a kind of a pro-Nazi uh, immigration policy, uh, are more than willing to cooperate, to put it mildly, uh, with these NAZIS in order to possibly bring down the Russian government, which has been a long-standing, long-term ambition. The only question I see going forward is if Christian Freeland will be forced to resign or will Mr. Trudeau himself be forced to resign? Because after all, uh, he's in hot water with the government in New Delhi, India. Uh, He charged the Indian government with being complicit in assassinating a Sikh Canadian citizen on Canadian soil uh, that has led to a downturn in relations with India. So the question is, uh, how many blows can Mr. Trudeau suffer before he has to tender a resignation? 
I also wonder how vocal the Ukrainian community is there that has been opposing Canada's long support of these Nazi immigrants into the country. I had an interview with a Canadian resident and an activist not that long ago, and they had done a whole podcast, which we rebroadcast of people talking about how, look, you know, my father, our fathers, our uncles fought in World War II against these very forces. And some of them died fighting against Nazis. And here you are in this country, not only supporting them, uh, supporting certain civic groups that are in support of these Nazi elements, there were also public monuments, statues in certain places. And there was even, a, they even pointed out that somewhere in New Jersey, <laughs> there was a statue. So I will link to that show when we post this show for the podcast and on the website. But I wonder how vocal they are around this latest incident. Well, I mean, it's clear that Canada has a healthy, progressive movement. They have a third party with a socialist orientation, the NDP, the New Democratic Party. Uh, it is headed by a Sikh Canadian. They have been influential in terms of influencing policies in Ottawa. I dare say that they were not pleased by this turn of events. And in light of the fact that elections in Canada are around the corner, uh, this is just another staggering blow to the pretensions of Mr. Trudeau's so-called liberal party. Right. And then what happened in Canada will have an impact here because we're in this war for information and truth. And the line put forth by the White House and the State Department is that any mention that Ukraine has a Nazi past, not to mention a Nazi present in terms of the Azov Battalion and other battalions, very much a big part of the military there, it's all been considered, oh, this is Russian propaganda. Or, you know, when Putin said that he wanted to denazify and uh, demilitarize Ukraine, it was like, oh, this man's a crazy person talking about Nazis. But, you know, certainly the people who listened to our show and heard excerpts from Ukraine on Fire, the, the Oliver Stone piece, and just the many conversations and interviews, I hope that they understand that history and present more. But um, maybe this incident in Canada will allow that news to get out to more of the people who are consuming corporate media. But um, I don't think corporate media is covering it too much. But but anyway. There's another Russia-related story that we yeah. should address. It involves what Armenia, a small, predominantly Christian South Caucasus, former Soviet Republic, they're charging that their comrades and countrymen who have an enclave in neighboring Azerbaijan, which is predominantly Muslim, they're charging that this Armenian enclave is being subjected to ethnic cleansing. Now, the deeper story is that historically, Armenia had looked to Moscow as this kind of big brother. This is before the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. But you may have noticed that in the last few weeks, you've seen Armenia cooperate with NATO in what was interpreted in Moscow as anti-Russian maneuvers. And so when the Azerbaijani forces moved into Nagorno-Karabakh, which is this predominantly Armenian enclave, uh, the Russians did not rush to the defense of this putative Ar Armenian uh, ally, which, of course, is actually now, I think it's fair to say, an ally of NATO. And there is a U.S. angle because the Armenian-American community is quite influential in this country, particularly in the Golden State, California. A former governor, George Duke Mason, uh, was of Armenian heritage, the well-known Kardashian family or of Armenian heritage. And we suspect that Armenian Americans were twisting the arm of the Armenian regime, which then was induced to take this uh, ill-advised maneuver 
of aligning with NATO, which is eventuated in a kind of ethnic cleansing. And I think that there is a lesson to be learned by other uh, former Soviet republics as they're being enticed as well to join with NATO. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard one commentator describe it as the latest effort at like a color revolution, but it seems like in the case of Marminia, it's just this one leader and not a a, a groundswell of, of public support for this, that he is maybe put himself in the crosshairs by not protecting his own people. Well, obviously there was a miscalculation. I, I think that what happens is that there is an overestimation of the potency and strength of NATO and what NATO can do. But if you had been paying any attention to what's going on in Ukraine, right. it seems to me you would have been de- uh, disabused of, of that uh, harebrained notion uh, immediately, if not sooner. Uh, I think that ultimately the regime in Yerevan most likely will be driven from power and uh, it's probably a just dessert indeed. Mm. Well, for much of this show, we're going to be focusing on some of the really important addresses by uh, leaders around the world at the UN and closing out our coverage of that. Is there anything you wanted to comment on from this session of the United Nations General Assembly? Well, with regard to South America, obviously, the remarks of President Petro of Colombia mm-hmm. are worthy of attention. Uh, similarly, with regard to Venezuela, it's apparent that U.S. policy towards that oil-rich country is backfiring, not only because President Maduro in the last week or so was just warmly embraced in China by President Xi Jinping, but also the crushing and cruel sanctions against Venezuela are driving Venezuelans out of the country uh, into the United States, which in turn is causing tensions between Mayor Eric Adams of New York City and the Biden White House. So obviously, uh, there needs to be an adjustment, shall we say, of U.S. policy towards Caracas. And then there's Indonesia. By some measures, the most populous, predominantly Muslim nation, and of course, a member in good standing of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Recall that it was approximately October 1965 that the U.S. CIA collaborated with the Indonesian military to pull off a coup against founding father Sukarno, which then in turn led to a decapitation of one of the most influential uh, communist parties in that part of the world. 500,000 people, by conservative estimates, uh, were slaughtered. I should also mention that Indonesia has a large population of Chinese descent. Uh, They oftentimes occupy the commanding heights of the economy. They were essential in terms of their investment in helping to bulwark the Chinese economy over the decades. And Washington is paying careful and close attention to events in Indonesia And understandably, the Indonesians have not forgotten the CIA's dastardly role in overthrowing a previous Indonesian regime circa 1965. Right. That is definitely one of the addresses we we hope to share this week or next week with our audience. And I was really struck by the evoking of the Bandung Conference and the non-aligned movement and the the role of Sukarno in in that era when so many countries were seeking, were involved in national liberation movements. Oh, most definitely. And your audience should know that uh, more than once during his reign, which lasted from the post-World War II era up until that unfortunate coup, uh, Sukarno reached out repeatedly uh, to the Black American community. In fact, it's difficult to understand the Bandung Conference taking place in the mid-1950s of developing countries, including countries from Asia and Africa, without understanding the fact that uh, the Indonesians were extending an olive branch 
to many black Americans. Recall that uh, Richard Wright, the late novelist and essayist, uh, he wound up attending that meeting in Bandung, and he was not alone in terms of black American participation. All right. Well, I know that the audience really appreciates you offering your insights on a weekly basis on on the ground, almost weekly or frequently. (laughs) I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And Professor Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. Or I also link to all my shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Everum. That's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. You can also write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T, contact at onthegroundshow.org. We'd love to hear from you. And we want to start reporting on your comments to us on the air. You can also subscribe on our podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, on all your podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Our podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says, On the Ground. The music we played this hour included It's Your World by Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you.